insert your own theme tune here hey this is nick again uh, in edinburgh without carey uh, citizens of nowhere and we have another guest i'm here with uh, constantine kissing hello thanks for having me how are you doing i'm very well uh, uh, we are in the final days of the fringe we are we are right at the end uh it's been a, as we just discussed it's been a good run for both of us yeah, well, let's let's talk about uh, your own brief because this is your first solo hour in Edinburgh, right? Yeah. So how's it how's it been? How's your? It's been fantastic. I think I've sold out probably half of my dates. That's <clears> very <throat> good going. Uh, and others have been close to full as well. I've had obviously I've had you know two or three uh, quiet shows as you find out. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And often on the back of a sold out show. Absolutely. So you you you, you yeah you bring the energy into the room and you walk. Oh, okay, hey, yeah. hey. 20 people, how yeah, are you? Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And quiet, um, I've had, uh, my room is a, is a 50-seater, and I think I've only once had it at below 30, so that, that's been brilliant. That's great. Um, for, for a debut as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's incredible. I've been very, very fortunate, and I've, I've also worked hard to, to put myself in this position. Um, so, yeah, can't complain. It's been absolutely brilliant, so tonight will obviously go terribly now that I've said that. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're doomed now. Are you doing Monday as well? I am, yeah. Um, just for the record, this is um, recorded on the Sunday, uh, which is the that's my last show tonight. You'll be doing the Monday as well, yeah. which is a weird twilight zone of a show where people people go, oh, is there still a festival? You know, yeah. I had my, my, my debut uh, hour sold out the entire run, put on extra shows, which mm. was pleasant, you know. And then the Monday, after this incredible run, the Monday was this weird, embarrassing, oh, and now I have to rehearse the show in front of a very small number of people yeah, after this incredible yeah, run. Yeah. So, uh, well, hopefully I, you won't now. No, I, I'm already pretty much sold out for Monday. Oh, that's so, great. That's yeah, so it, it, it looks like I'll, I won't be finishing on a low, which is the one thing I really didn't want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be fine. <coughs> that would be fine. Good to know. And your show's called All Well That Ends Well. Yeah. Why is it called that? Well, it's called that because the issue I'm really talking about is free speech. Right. Uh, and you've seen the show. I have seen the show. Um, and this this was the bit where you're supposed to say it was great, but but we've skipped that. Oh, bit. I thought you were gonna gonna sum it up because I, I there's, there's, there's bits in it that I mentioned. I saw, funny enough, I saw that show the same night that I saw Andrew Doyle's show, uh-huh. and I very very nearly saw Titania McGrath in between. Right. Which um, I interviewed Andrew the other day. And he directed your show. So that would have been incredibly sort of concentrated, I don't know what you'd call it, doylegasm. Yeah. Of, um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to, before I got, yeah, I enjoyed your show very much. Yeah. It was one of the, those, um, there's a few rooms in the Gilded Balloon, which is where you're on, that are really quite hot and quite intense. Um and mine and, is certainly one of them. Yeah, yours is. It's not. And there's the turret room, which is up at the top, which is um, roughly the same size, a bit smaller maybe. Mm. Uh, and that is that's like the apex of a pyramid where all the heat's been gathering mm. up to that that point. Um, and your show, you've got a slightly bigger stage. You have a screen on stage with little clips and sort of montages. Mm. But anyway, I wanted you before we got onto it. Uh, I did enjoy your show very much. Sorry, I miss, sorry, missed the cue. It's my social niceties there. Um, but it's called All Well That Ends Well. It's uh, about free speech. Mm. And it's about... Um, or you're kind of leaping off the back of a, a couple of things personal to you, but one is a particular story. Mm. Well, the, the one thing that probably people may 
the small number of people who have ever heard of me will have heard right. of me because uh, I was in the news for about a week over Christmas. And this was because I was performing at Top Secret, which is a great comedy club in London. Right. There were some students there who saw me, they liked my set, and they invited me to perform at the university, which was SOAS, um, the School of Oriental, Oriental and African, African Studies. African Studies. Um, and when they did, they sent me what they called a safe space behavioral agreement contract, wow, okay. uh, which had a whole list of things that you weren't supposed to joke about or even venture into, which ended with the statement that all jokes must be presented in a way that's respectful and kind. Right, okay. Uh, and when I turned that down and tweeted about it to my, at the time, very small number of Twitter followers, it became a, a huge news story. Um, and so I'm leaping off the off the back of that, I suppose, talking about what that was like going from being a comedian that no one's ever heard of to being in the middle of this media storm. Right. Uh, and then I'm, I'm using that to talk about where we are with uh, restrictions on our ability to say what we think in this country generally. Okay. Um, and that, with, with another, I mean, maybe you're about to mention this, but with another, you've got another kind of angle on it as well, which is that you... Well, it's personal to me. I yeah. mean, free speech is personal to me because I grew up in a country where we didn't have it in the right. Soviet Union. And the reason I live in Britain is that my grandfather was essentially forced out of the Soviet Union for something that he said, that, that most people thought, but you were not supposed to right. say. Uh, and it's interesting, I saw a story in, the, in I think it was in the Telegraph, <coughs> that according to the latest polling, uh, about, I think, 76% of the British public think that political correctness has gone too far, uh, okay. which is quite, a, a, it's a very large number. If you think mm. about how hostile certainly the comedy industry seems to be to the idea that political correctness may have gone too far, uh, yeah. I, I certainly had a lot of backlash when I turned down that contract from people in the comedy industry, which I thought was, to me, was mind-boggling. Yeah, I, I, it, I mean, it doesn't boggle my mind to be honest. It um, it strikes me that something like that is a it's an excellent opportunity to, with very low risk, to demonstrate your allegiance to a tribe. Mm. Yeah, so, oh, so, so what, you know, what racist things did this man want to say that he wouldn't sign this? You know what I mean? It's like no risk to you to show how great and woke you mm. are. That's interesting. So you weren't surprised by the fact that people were having a pop at me over turning that down? No, I, th I think it's almost, I don't know what percentage of social media is like that now, but it was, my, sh my show is about tribalism mm. and about how much of what people do, it, it, even though they might not admit it and even though they might not even be aware of it, is less to make a rational argument, less to bring about political change and more to show more to show to the people who are like them that they are like them yeah. and to show that they're different from the opposing tribe on mm. whatever issue it might be. It's interesting how many comedians are talking about that at the moment. That is obviously something that a lot of people have picked up on. Uh, and I, I agree with you, it is happening. Um, yeah, but, but I kind of, naively, I mean, uh, I thought that the tribe that I'm in, which is the comedy tribe, right? we kind of all use our freedom to speak for our work. So anyone who stands up for our right to do that would be, uh, would be treated, <coughs> certainly wouldn't be um, attacked. But that, that, that's interesting because I, I, I think under certain circumstances, you might find that you would be defended by comedians against non-comedians. Mm. But that's also not where comedians exist solely right comedians mm. are existing with an audience at all times and they 
often trying to display to their audience their tribal loyalty. Yeah. So I can absolutely imagine you getting thrown on the under the bus by other mm. comics. In particular, comics who don't know you. Yeah. I think I think if there's more of a social thing, if you if you've been around twenty years longer than you have, mm. I think people would be much yeah. Unless you've done something that people found beyond the pale. Unless that was a Lucy K type, yeah. Yeah, or Andrew Lawrence. Yeah. And a similar thing happened with Andrew Lawrence, I think. Um, it wasn't just here, you know, he, Andrew wasn't just refusing to sign an agreement. He was also just having a big sideswipe against, you know, against people who probably assumed that they were his friends. Mm. Mm. So, you know, that, um, that's that's a different thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, but but anyway, I mean, what I what I think I've realised out of it is that actually, as you say, we are very tribal and I think the comedy world is uh, kind of, there are tribes within it that are differently politically aligned. And right. me turning down that contract was a signal to some of those people that I am not in their tribe. And this is, as you say, was this was their, their opportunity to come right. out and go, oh, we don't like this guy because we, yeah. we're, we're good people. Um, and so that, that happened. But um, as I've now realized, and I'm increasingly starting to realize this, not just with comedy, but with almost everything, it's like, I went to America uh, a couple of years ago visit some friends of ours and when you go to uh, like a shopping mall in America and you want to get a soft drink you know how in, in the UK you, there's like a vending machine you can get a Coke you can get a Fanta you can get a whatever yeah in America they have these machines that will prepare your drink for you right and it's not that you get a Coke or a, a, a Diet Coke or a Fanta or a whatever you can have your Coke in 20 different flavors. You can have your Fanta in 20 different flavors. You can All have right. your Pepsi in 20 different flavors. Uh, everything is going to be about mass customization from now on. So it's not going to be about me, you, and our wives, let's say, want to pop out and see a comedy show that on average for us would be an 8 out of 10. No one wants to do that anymore. People want to go and see a show that for them personally is a 10 out of 10. Right. Do you know what I mean? And with Netflix and all the Amazon Prime and all this kind of stuff, everybody has a chance now to see something that tailors very much to them and only to them. Uh, and what I think is going to happen with comedy and with everything else is you, being someone who's really good in a particular niche is going to be much better than being really good overall. Sure. Okay. What about what does that mean for a comedy club then? When you go along, right? We both, I'd say, predominantly most of our work, uh, if we're not touring with someone else, whatever, is in comedy clubs, where the huge majority of the audience have come out mm. to see whoever happens to be on at that comedy club that night. Very rare, I think, that people go, "Oh, right, Cousins and Kissing and Nick Doody are on this yeah, is my yeah. kind of night," you know. Yeah. I think people just turn up, like as, as Doug Stanhope puts it, whatever bag of shit is standing behind the microphone. <laughs> That's a bit of a, you know, yeah. like, but you, no one has ever done that with music. Yeah. Or a crowd doesn't, right? Kind of, yeah. I'm just going to a music concert, who is it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But you yeah, go for a band that you've already heard, right? Mm. But comics, we've always had that anonymity. And do you think that that is on the way out then? Well, uh, no, I think there will always be room for it. But uh, I think that, you're starting to see even that fragment now. So Andrew's night comedy unleashed, for example, is a perfect example. And it's and Andrew Andrew uh, Doyle. Doyle, right. you, you had him on the podcast. He has a night called Comedy Unleashed. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. Just yeah, because yeah. I mentioned Andrew Lawrence. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. right. <laughs> well, he, Andrew Lawrence has played there actually, but um, 
the point of the night is that it's a place where comedians don't self-censor. And, right. and so if you're coming there, you, you, you have the expectation that the comedy will be edgier, perhaps, than it might be elsewhere. And equally, on the flip side, there's a guy who hates me, and I'm not a big fan of his either, called James Ross, who runs Quantum Leopard, which is ah, okay. the opposite of that. It's a night where you're not allowed to talk to members of the audience who don't have a special sticker that, that, of the right color that tells you they're okay to talk to. That's interesting. There's all kinds of rules about what you can and can't talk about. <clears throat> so I think even with comedy clubs, there will be more segmentation to the point where it's like, well, I want to go and see edgy comedy, therefore I go to Comedy Unleashed. I want to go see soft, cuddly, safe space comedy, I'm going to go to Quantum Leopard. Uh, and, and then there will be maybe others. You know, there are clubs, for example, that, that run, uh, that only book women. Right. Right. So you will have more and more of that kind of thing, I suspect. Uh, you will probably have... Uh, you know, a dark comedy club or wrong comedy club or something like that. As we do up here in Edinburgh, there's all kinds of things. Yeah, 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 there's um, late shows. And, yeah. So I think that will continue to happen. And also, you know, the comedy club as an institution, I probably will decline in scale and power as more people go direct through through social media and YouTube and online. I mean, I have a podcast myself that I co-host with Francis Foster, Right. And I'm getting five to ten people on my debut hour coming to see me every night from that. From trigonometry. From trigonometry, yeah. right. So as that grows, you know, I may end up just playing to people who watch the YouTube show and want to come and see me because of that, you know. Uh, that's not to say that comedy clubs aren't, aren't valuable or important. Of course they are. Right. And actually they are the training ground where we learn the craft that we then are used to be able to play our own shows but I, I think that will continue to happen we will we will have more segmentation speaking of how long have you been going now how long have you been doing uh, approaching four years now right very early I, I didn't really know what to expect from seeing you I thought you know hadn't been going that long mm. and you had this sort of limited notoriety from one event so I, I kind of went in going I hope it's good mm. but it's very good mm. like really sort of uh, strong jokes and you know because there's that thing that happens sometimes that somebody just gets thrust into the limelight when they're not ready. But you, you seem ready. You had an interesting angle, and um, then with your grandfather mm. coupled with this, you know, this this other thing that happened. Um, I've actually had to make it slightly edgier than my normal comedy in a way, uh, because I'm really not an offensive comedian. I didn't turn down the sure. contract because I'm some edge lord who wants to say racist stuff on stage. Right, uh, as you know, having seen my show. Uh, I just uh, to me it was a more of an issue of principle which is what I talk about in the show yeah um, yes yeah, so, yeah it is interesting it's very kind of you to say and I really appreciate you coming I was very honoured that you came and saw the show um, I think honoured is the appropriate word <laughs> well honoured by my friends. you know I, I think you're a very good comedian and um, you know for, as you say for someone young and up and coming like me uh, you, there was always going to be the possibility that I'd be shit uh, and for you to kind of just go, well, I'll go along and see what happens. That's 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 nice for someone like me. You know, I appreciated yeah. that. Um, but as you say, yeah, I mean, beforehand, I almost felt kind of weird going on TV, as I've done several times now, and talking about different things to do with... I write for a couple of newspapers and about comedy and about different things. I always had that thought at the back of my mind, like, you know, they say, they introduce me as a comedian. The most I've ever done is a 20 in a, <coughs> in a comedy club somewhere. Yeah. Uh, am I really kind of justified in talking about this stuff? 
but now I've had a very successful run of my own hour debut show. I kind of I'm like yeah yeah I am a comedian now. I can say that. What about the, the I mean the TV that you have done? You say just uh, Piers Morgan yeah. and uh, Fox News. I mean that I'm... BBC Breakfast. Since I've been on Good Morning Britain a few times now, talking about different oh. issues. Um, Do you find that there's an effect when you're when you're brought on because of this one thing mm. that you're now you're slightly suffering from being pigeonholed as the guy who wants to have a go at work woke culture or who you know what I mean like I don't have any problem with that because I am the guy who wants to have a go at work culture I absolutely want to have a go at work culture and uh, I don't if it was the the issue I have being pigeonholed is people call me a right wing comedian Right. And the, and it's usually like for example Ian Dale who's an LBC presenter yeah, yeah. who's who, who came he came to see my show and he wrote a lovely thing in the Spectator saying that my show was his favorite comedy show of the Fringe, and in the printed version it was just his column with my show and a few others mentioned, which was great, but in the online version the sub editor who published that article said right wing comedians of the Fringe challenging blah blah blah, <laughs> and and that's someone who's favorable and friendly to me. Uh, and who liked my show, putting me in a box in which I don't belong because I'm not right wing. But Ian Dale is right wing. Ian Dale so, is a kind of one nation Tory. Yeah, so he's yeah, right, yeah. right of centre. Sure. Well, I mean, he has a he has a podcast with them. Um, Harry Harman, is it? Uh, no, it's Jackie Smith. Jackie Smith, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So getting my yeah. So he's <laughs> he's a slightly right of centre, but he's a very very. Of course, not Harry's fucking Harman. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but Jackie Smith is a former Labour Home Secretary. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it's nicely balanced. But anyway, my point is that even people who like my stuff often put me in the box simply and I, yeah, it's funny because I wrote a piece in the spectator four or five months ago talking about how everyone who doesn't agree with this cultural narrative is now called right wing and then the spectator itself calls me right wing it's very funny <laughs> but I mean you know on the, from the spectator that's coming from a place of love I suppose you know yeah like that's that's an interesting thing I think when people um there's an assumption there, right-wing comedians. Mm. That is meant by a lot of people as, as a criticism. I mean, by the spectator, I imagine it's not. Probably not, no. But that's... Um... But, but it's interesting that um, I think the pigeonholes are... I guess the, the media feel like they're necessary to get people's attention. Like, if you just yeah, yeah. wrote a piece saying comedians, some small number of comedians at the fringe challenging the liberal number, whatever they wouldn't get nearly as much attention, I suppose. Maybe that's why they do it. Yeah, maybe maybe I mean, they just don't care about me enough, <laughs> which is not surprising to, to really care that much about how I identify politically. Uh, they well, just... they want to know your identity, don't they? Yeah. So, um, it's, um, which is one of those weird things, because if you, if, you if you've ticked certain boxes, then those boxes are enough. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, a young black female comedian, well, you've told loads there. Yeah. But in a way that you haven't been told yeah, anything. If someone, anything. someone goes middle-aged male white comedian, well, I've given you exactly the same pieces of information, but I but no one's got a clue. Yeah, there are more of us, I guess, or whatever. Um, but uh, right wing—that's immediately, hmm. you know. That's telling a lot of people they're not going to enjoy this. Yeah, and yeah. some people that they might. Which is interesting to me because, as you would have seen on the night that you came, and I don't even remember which night it was, but I know this because it's every night. My audiences are incredibly mixed. Yeah. So I, I ask my audience where they are, and my audience are about usually about a third left of center, a third right of center, a third bang in the middle. 
Right. Yeah, it, it felt. It felt. I mean, the night I was in, it felt like you had you just sort of forty percent left, twenty percent centre, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I usually the majority are left of centre, uh, and then there's a, a, a like a few right wingers and a few centrists. That's usually how it is. Yeah. yeah. I I, I, ne- I never know which moment to cheer for when someone does that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to cheer right of centre because I don't think that describes me on many things. But. Yeah. Um, I sort of left. You know, there's a bit of me going. And yeah. <laughs> if you're holding a big picture of Corbyn while you say that, I probably won't cheer. I, yeah. you know, I don't know what the hell to cheer for. Yeah. You know, I pick, it, I've got the smallest board of opinions. Yeah, it's quite difficult now. I think, and and there are obviously massive oversimplifications, but there are people who who are who will feel very comfortable saying I'm left wing or I'm right wing or yeah. I'm in the centre. Um, and the, guy yeah. ne- the guy next to me was right wing. Mm. He was taking up two chairs. I'm not saying they're connected. <laughs> Maybe he was Israeli. Um, yeah, he was occupied. Occupied the two yeah. chairs. Um, I'm allowed but to just do that as, joke. Just I'm as, Jewish. Just as a Fine. buffer between me and him. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't saying it was universally, yeah. universally acknowledged. The second chair was him. It's just that he was occupied. Yeah, anyway. But I really like that about my audience. I like that it's a place where people from all over the political spectrum can come together and you can be sitting next to a right winger, which in a normal comedy club doesn't usually happen. You know, comedy clubs tend to feel at least like they're very left wing. And and what I like about my audiences is that it's people from across the political spectrum coming to see a show about something that I don't think is a political issue anyway. I don't think free speech is a left versus right issue. The fact that there are sections of the left that seem to have abandoned that battle doesn't mean that it's a right-wing issue. It just means that some people on the left have gone fucking mental. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it definitely shouldn't be a left or right issue. Yeah. And gen- generally, people have done things like the political compass, haven't they? Well, you've got left-wing and right-wing, and then you have something like authoritarian and libertarian. Mm, yes. Um, so attacks on free speech are authoritarian, whether they're coming from the left or the right. Right. The issue for me, what I, I think the left is very naive about is they think that all these laws that we now have about what you can and can't say, the mm. police arresting people for words that they say, uh, the hypersensitivity that we have. People think that if they have the right opinions, which the right opinions are being on the left The now, correct opinions. The yeah. correct opinions, right? Uh, those opinions will protect them. And as we saw with Joe Brand they won't protect you. Being left-wing will not save you. The police will do an investigation if you make a joke that maybe is ill-advised in her case. I don't know if you remember the story. I, yeah, I do. And we, we covered it on the... Carrie and I covered it on the podcast a bit. And, you know, the producer shouldn't have put it out. No. Uh, was a bit of an ill-judged joke. Whatever. I don't, the police investigation, I mean... Seems a bit much, but nothing happened to her, right? Well, that's not true, though, is it? What happened to her then? Well, she was hounded by the media for days, and she was investigated by the police, right? Oh, now, okay, in that, in, in that sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is... The hounding by the media thing it seems like sort of a slightly secondary effect. It does, but it's part of a culture. If we had a culture yeah, where true. no one cared, and everyone accepted the comedian's right to make a bad joke because it's part of the playful game of creating something is you make mistakes and yeah, yeah. 90% of what you say on stage for the first time is shit, right? We sure. all know that, right? With time, you can get it down to the, the high 80s. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we all know that and we understand that. And if we had a culture in which people accepted a comedian's right 
to make mistakes on stage. And in this case, I agree with you. I think the producers were wrong. She, she yeah. Uh, in my opinion, ill-advised joke, but she has every right to, to attempt to make a joke, right? If we had the culture, she would never have been hounded by the media. And if she hadn't been hounded by the media, she would not have been investigated by the police because these things go hand in is, hand. Is that the order in which it happened? Yeah. Yeah. So the I, mean, I, mean, I guess it would have to be, yeah. Because it became a massive become, news story yeah. first and then the police were like, oh, we have to investigate this. Right, yeah. And I don't know if you've ever been investigated the police. I haven't. But, to my knowledge. Right. <laughs> well, if it's something that happens in that way, your name is all over the media, everyone's talking about you being hounded by the media. Like, I was not hounded by the media when my SOAS thing happened. I just got a lot of positive press coverage. Right. Joe was hounded by the media. And, you know, she's, in, at this point, let's be honest, an elderly woman being harassed by 12 paparazzi shoving cameras in her face going do you think you went too far <coughs> all this kind of very unpleasant experience I imagine it's elderly what you're making me feel so old by describing Joe Rand as an elderly what, what's she in her 60s now I imagine right how old are you I'm 36 you're not that much fucking elderly you're less than 10 years younger than me that's amazing yeah or about, yeah that's really funny I, someone in their 60s to me is that's not elderly I think uh, well uh, I mean She's a grandmother, imagine, right? So to me, anyone who's a grandmother... Sure, but if you're from the right socioeconomic background, you can be a grandmother by about 23. <laughs> Wait, no. I love the way that you, is wrong. I love the way you replace working class with the right socioeconomic background there, <laughs> just to make it more palatable. Um, well, working class isn't enough. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, so my point is with her is that she was punished for that joke quite severely, actually. Okay. She had... I, what I imagine was a deeply unpleasant experience for, for, for a number of days, probably for a week, followed by a police investigation. And as I say, neither of us has been investigated by the police in that, in that kind of context. But I imagine that is a deeply unpleasant experience. And <coughs> there is no question in my mind that there will be some comedians who will have seen that and gone, well, I'll be extra careful. That, yes, I, I, I agree with that, absolutely. And um, I don't know if you would if you will remember, uh, Yentob's Noddies, does that something about? A little while ago, it came out that a lot of stuff on TV is faked. But faked for reasons of making the grammar of television more smoother. Mm. So what will happen is they will, uh, before an interview, so like what we're doing now, if I have the camera behind me, uh, I'm the interviewer, you're the subject, and exactly what you're doing now, you're nodding while I talk, mm. and we're going to use this footage yeah. to in, as interstitials just so that we've got we've got some good footage of you listening to a question, and we'll make that work. And it turned, and, and there became for a while a culture of, oh, all this stuff is fake, we can't use any of it. And that had an enormous chilling effect on media, not just like comedy and news, things like that. And... That stuff, I think, is uh, is very real and also not very tangible. So it's very difficult to measure. You can't measure how many people have decided not to write or say a thing. Yes. Uh, it's completely unmeasurable, but I think you and I both would agree that there will be some people who would have looked at that and have thought, well, I don't want the police investigating me. And the, my point with Joe Brand is that she's someone who is on the... on. She has the correct opinions. Right. 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 The, 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 yeah, the, the cultural establishment. Yes. Right. Yeah. right. Uh, so I think what people on the left need to recognize is that they, you, you won't be in, in, in cultural power forever. There will come a moment when it swings back the other way and 
you will be the minority speaking out against the cultural dominant force that doesn't agree with you. And, <coughs> the, you know, it's, it's not, a, I don't remember who said this, but the best way to calibrate laws is to think, would I want my worst enemy enforcing this law against me? I think that's called the golden thread. Yeah. There's the golden thread of the thing. There's, um, in, the, in the play Man for Old Seasons about Thomas More, there's a line where um, he's asking to Thomas Cromwell, um, and, uh, but this is the law, and, and Cromwell goes, the law of dams, you know, something like that. And uh, More goes, would you... Would you burn down the law to get to the devil? He goes, for the devil himself, of course, I'd burn down all the laws. And he goes, and once you've caught the devil, and then someone's after you, and you turn around and see that all the laws are burnt, mm. who will protect you then? Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's right. the, that, that seems a point that a lo- an alarming number of people find impossible to grasp, that the law has to exist for everybody, otherwise it doesn't fucking work. Yeah. And when you are in power, it is very unwise to abuse your power to create laws that are unfair because you will not be in power forever. Right, exactly. Everything you're okay with Obama doing, Trump can now do. Yeah. So then this is one of the things that that's exactly that's happened. I mean, Obama abused executive orders and so Trump is abusing them now and people can't say anything. Uh, I mean, actually, to be honest, most presidents have abused executive powers and also uh, when it comes to like do, going to war and stuff, they, they, they've gone to war without congressional approval loads and yeah. other people can now do it because previous ones have. So all, all I'm saying is in terms of kind of lefty people in the comedy world is they've got to recognize that having this hypersensitivity and promoting it, it will be used against you. If, if you continue pushing down this path. Uh, and that's why I think uh, it's important that actually this becomes a non-political issue. I just think comedians need to stand together on this one thing. Yeah. Which which is never going to happen because comedians are like, it's like herding cats getting comedians to, to do anything. Sure. Is one. But we can... Yeah, why not? But I don't I know have if you've witnessed any of the occasional attempts to unionise comedians, no. but they, they, they have not worked very well. No. Um, this this nice. I will say this. There's some nice solidarity among comedians when people, um, especially getting older, some something bad happens mm. and people have a whip round. There's a lot of generosity and goodwill there. Yeah. But it, it's not. Um, it's not systematic. No. It's not uh, organised. So there's a lot, a lot of one for me. Um, let's say. Oh, who knows? Or for for Andrew Doyle. Or, but but this is the thing. Is actually when you say who knows. I mean, this is Andrew Doyle and I have this d- discussion all the time, where. I guess he feels very, um, he feels frustrated that he, he, by doing the comedy that he does and by not being, by being a Brexit supporter in his case or whatever, (coughs) he's kind of in in this rejected minority almost of of the comedy world. He feels that way. That that is still amazing. I think the way that Brexit is, is, let me, let me tie this into your show a bit because when you, the interesting thing about asking an audience where they are politically, it, it, they might not tell you, mm. but they're more likely to in a show like yours where you've already kind of put a bit of yourself on the table. Mm. You said that well, this is a pro-free speech uh, show, which which some people, wrongly I think, but some people see as a right-wing stance, mm. which as we've, as we've already agreed, I think it shouldn't be. So people are feeling a little more like, well, I lean to the right and I can say this. But that doesn't happen in, in, in comedy clubs in general. First no. of all, people don't usually ask. Secondly, secondly, by not asking, what they're allowing is a false consensus that everybody's on the liberal left. Mm. 
And the fucking chances of a 200-strong audience all being Remain-supporting... They're not. ...liberal, you know... Well, they're not. ...pro-gay marriage, all, all of those things. Yeah, they won't be, but within that consensus, you wouldn't admit it. Yeah, because the, we've had three years of comedians going on stage every night and calling Brexit supporters stupid racists, saying how old people aren't supposed to vote. So if you're aware of that climate, why would you put your hand up? Mm. Whereas in my show, the first thing I make clear is I say where I am politically, which is I say I used to be left wing, now I'm in the centre. Right. And then I say I, I respect everybody. I make fun of everybody because I respect everybody. So I think in my show, I make people comfortable to be... To, to be who they are uh, because I've told them where I am and I've also said to them I'm going to make fun of everyone because I like everyone you know right. I get on I can get on with someone who's right wing and I can get on with someone who's left wing as I do with my friends you know yeah I, I, do, I do think on Brexit because I, I wanted to mention Brexit there yeah. as this false consensus thing yeah we had a and for me it for me it's it's painfully tribal it's it's really disastrously tribal mm. there are people now who take positions that they didn't take when they voted to leave mm. that they now believe they have always held yeah. that's happening a lot and and the same on the other side yeah. there are people who have a load of opinions that they've come by in the last year or two as they've read more that if you if you ask them under oath they would swear they already had in their head when they voted to remain like that that's happening across the board but the idea Leave one, right? Of the people who voted, more voted leave than remain. So the idea that that's the thing that you can't say in in no, liberal polite society is quite astonishing. It's insane. It's insane. But I do think it's changed. Do you not think it's changed a bit in comedy that when people are talking about Brexit, to a large extent, a lot of people are trying to be a little more even-handed? Well, I certainly am. I'm voted remain. But uh, I think... Um, I think what has happened is the, the backlash against the kind of jokes that I mentioned that were being done initially mm. uh, has been there. And I think a lot of comedians became aware of the fact that they're not playing to 200 people who all agree with them. If you go on stage now, uh, even at a kind of liberal London comedy club, and you talk about how Brexit voters are stupid racist, you won't get much of a laugh because people are, the people who agree with it probably have heard it enough that they're bored of it. And the right. people who don't agree with it have, have heard it enough and they're pissed off about it. Um, so I think it's just become a hack thing to do. But I still see comedians and, and good comedians, you know, talking about how <coughs> we mustn't let old people vote and all this other thing, you know. And, and I just, I, I don't find that very interesting. But anyway, my point with Andrew uh, is that he's frustrated, I think, as to some extent we all are, I suppose, that he's not kind of the mainstream, that his comedy is not right. the comedy that people really like want to push and promote and whatever. And I, my point to him is always, well, we are pushing against the, the mainstream narrative, you and I. And by definition, if you're pushing against the mainstream, you will be the outsider. Uh, but it, there will come a point, this is my opinion, that where that flips, just like alternative comedy of the 80s, and 90s that emerged yeah. as a response to the mainstream that had been there before. Uh, I think the pushback against this woke culture and hypersensitivity is coming and we are probably, I would certainly hope, the kind of the first signs of that happening. If you look at the amount of attention our shows have had, this fringe, it's been completely disproportionate to the number of comedians like me talking about it. 
you know, I've had probably 12 or 13 reviews, which is for a debut show is crazy. Yeah, that's good. I think I've had one. Yeah. Sorry, I did. <laughs> this is. Uh, you've had a very successful career compared to mine, so I, I'm not making, <laughs> not making you feel inadequate here. But uh, no, no. But I mean, that twelve or thirteen is a hell. Of, that, that, that's a lot any year. Yeah. And it is getting harder and harder to get reviewed. Mm. You know, there are fewer reviews and more acts. Yeah. So that's uh, that's very impressive. So what it shows, I think, is and I, and Andrew's show probably wouldn't have had many. I don't know, uh, but he's he did a really short run, short run. Yeah. But Titania, his the the character that he created, oh. her show would have had more press attention even than mine, right? So there's obviously an understanding in certain sections of the media that including, you know, the far left kind of Guardian type thing, that this is an issue. Uh, and I think a lot of people are watching very carefully how it's going to, how this thing's going to break. And the same people who are now having a go at me and Andrew and Leo Kurse and, and others uh, for attacking these ideas if the the break falls the right way, they will be the first high fiving us, going, "Yeah, I've always said you you're doing the right thing," you know. <laughs> um, so I, I it's see very interesting coming. to try to see that with clear eyes as and when it happens. I, I wonder. Obviously, I've got a vested interest in that being true. <coughs> uh, yeah, but um, but that is my sense of what's happening, and I think when I played comedy unleashed, one of the things that I noticed it was that it was incredibly. It was an incredibly erudite audience. These are people who are well-read, interested in politics. They understand the cultural sphere. So, you know, a lot of people said to me, oh, Comedy Unleashed, what's the point of it? And I go, well, the point is you don't self-censor. And they're like, oh, that must be a night for racists then. <laughs> uh, and my experience has been very much the opposite, that it's a night for people who are interested in the culture wars, which we're kind of living through. Mm. Um and there will be an appetite for people who are representing the pushback against what many people now see, as I said, 76% of people who now see that political correctness, irrespective of where they are politically, is is going too far. Okay, so if, if there's this night for um, people who don't self-censor, what is the self-censorship that is happening other nights? The self-censorship is happening everywhere. I mean, I, I speak regularly to people. People speak to me about it because they know that it's something I'm interested in. Right. Uh, you know, MCs from some of the better clubs in London who say the number of complaints we are now getting is through the roof. So audience members now feel entitled to come to a show where they're one of 300 people. And the other 299 people were laughing their heads off, but this person chose to be offended. And they now feel entitled to come up to the MC or to the club owner after the show and go, I think you should never book that comedian again. Even though the comedian has done their job. The mm. comedian has made people laugh. Yeah, that's um, that is a new thing. Of course, I, I, I think I think the offence thing is not that new. But yeah, you're right. That the, the, there are people now who can sit in a room. I've, I've, I mean, I've had a little bit um, with much bigger rooms of sort of seven hundred, twelve hundred, whatever, um, on tour. There being one complaint of, and you know, I was at the gig. I was on the stage. I know the stuff worked. I wouldn't do the stuff if it didn't work. Mm. Um, and this person must have been in an audience surrounded by people laughing at Rory's mm. in this one thing and they've decided I'm going to make this complaint it's disgusting I shouldn't mm. do that mm. and at no point do they go do they have the presence of mind or just the self criticism to go maybe the fact that I have different levels of sensitivity or different push buttons to the people around me 
is something that should, <laughs> you know, something that means I should just let them enjoy it and note that mm. I wasn't enjoying it, mm. rather than demanding something be done about my feelings. But the thing is that I can go and see a comedy show by someone whose opinions I don't like. Sure. And if they've got good jokes, I will laugh because I will enjoy it. The, the problem you have now, so that, that's, that's one example, is that people now feel much more entitled to complain. Even, even if you think about the fact, I mean, Bill, I think I remember like a conversation with uh, Bill Burr that, uh, uh, for the Comedians Comedian podcast, where he was talking about the fact, you know, if I've played to a thousand people, and one person didn't enjoy it, that's kind of a home run. Yes, it's unbelievably successful. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That, that's, that's, you're killing it, right? So in the past, those people would have just gone away going, well, I don't like that comedian, I won't go and see him again. Now, it's very much, I don't like that comedian, I need to get them punished. I mean, Francis Foster... That, that's, that's the bit I wanted to bring yeah. up. I, I, th- I think the, the entitlement is one thing, mm. but it's now, now you, th- now you seem to think that you, you, know, you can stop someone's career now. Yeah. That's what, you know, cancelled. Cancelled, yeah, yeah. Well, Sorry, Fran- I inter- I no, 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 it's fine. Uh, Francis Foster, who I co-host Trigonometry yeah. with, is a very good comedian. He's, he emcees a lot, and he was emceeing a gig in London. Uh, and he is half Venezuela. His mother is from Venezuela. Yeah. And he does a joke about... He never mentions. <laughs> <laughs> he mentions it all the time. And now I'm doing his work for him. But uh, he has a joke <laughs> about how when he was younger, he, he, want, he used to reconnect with his Latino roots which is just a longer way of saying that he used to do cocaine. Right. Just a joke about his heritage. Sure. Right? Uh, that comedy club got an email saying, uh, as a man in power, now anyone who knows Francis realises yes. he's not a man in power. No. <coughs> I mean, no offence to, to you, Francis, but... Um... You're not, you have no power whatsoever, mate. <laughs> um, as a man in power, he needs to not do these offensive stereotypes. He's talking about himself. Right. right. So this this is now the perception is like yes, audiences have always felt that if you've got a microphone, you have power. Was this was this complaint emailed in at about four a.m.? It was emailed in. I don't know. I, what find, time. I find this is a bit of cocaine very offensive. Yeah. Yeah. So the, and that's just one sign of it. I have spoken to a lot of comedians who've said to me like, you know what? I really like the fact that you talk about politics on stage, but. There's no way I can talk about politics. And I was like, why not? And he went, well, because I'm a straight white man and I'd just be crucified. This is a quote, word for word, from somebody. Right. So people, uh, I, I have, uh, I have a, a comedian who's a, a very, very good comedian. I won't name him. He's a black guy. He got accused of being racist the other day. Okay. Right. I mean, it's, it's we're at that point where like everyone is tense about this shit, you know? I, without knowing, without knowing what the what the, the thing was, he was accused. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I have no no part of me thinks a black person can't be racist. Uh, no, I'm not saying that a black person can't be racist, but this guy is not racist. He was sure. He was talking about. He made a joke about some other country. The, the it was just like like you might make a joke about me being from Russia. Right. Go. Oh, you're a bit radioactive or what? Right. It was something <laughs> like that. Right. And this woman said that he was so. It's happening much, much more, and people become aware of it. Um, you know, uh, another comedian friend of mine, he was telling me how he had a very funny routine about... Um, he was comparing his wife making jokes about his receding hairline, and something like... The joke is something like, well, if your hairline recedes anymore, I'm going to divorce you. And he said, well, if your waistline expands anymore, I'm going to divorce you. Right. So he was just saying that there's this... 
kind of the, the, these two things that right. men and women have differently going on and it's a very funny written routine and he stopped being booked by a big comedy club because the book had decided that was a sexist joke right so and it's just like with the Joe Brown thing it's, and this is what I talk about in the show it's not that you can't say what you think it's that increasingly we're not quite sure what is and isn't safe for us to say Right, because yeah. if that is a sexist routine, then you go, okay, well, I need to take it down a notch here. I need to take it down. I need to cut this corner, and then eventually you you end up sanitizing your own material and who you are as a comedian, because people are increasingly aware now of the repercussions. And for a, a very very good established comedian like yourself, it may be less of, a, of an issue. But if you're up and coming on the circuit now, your you know comedy is an incredibly hard business to advance in. As I think everyone knows. Yeah, and, and I can only assume getting harder. Yes, absolutely. So if you're someone who's up and coming and you're just trying to, you've got your five minute open spot at the comedy store, Top Secret, or what other good big clubs, yeah. you can't afford even a millimeter to stray even a millimeter over that line, right? And that forces you to into a smaller and smaller box because you're like, well, I better make sure that it's all you know, 100% inoffensive. Um, and it pushes a lot of people who are... It's like, you know, when my thing happened with SOAS, Ricky Gervais came out and he was like, oh, it's a great... It's the best time ever to do offensive comedy because more people are offended. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, maybe for you. It definitely is for you, That's Ricky. funny. You know, and, and he's right. If you have millions of followers, it's a brilliant time because you but can... If you built a brand. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and... But if you're trying to make your way, particularly in the club game, playing the comedy clubs where you're just doing five or ten or twenty minutes, uh, and the opportunities are like gold dust, and you've you spent a year emailing a comedy club just to get a tryout spot there, when you're doing that five minute spot, the last thing you want to do is offend anyone, upset anyone, cross any lines, and there will be people who, in that situation, pull their punches. And increasingly, more and more people pull their punches, and eventually, you end up with a whole comedy circuit where everyone's pulling their punches. Yeah, that's potentially true. I mean, it's uh, definitely. I mean, someone who writes a lot, mm. so I write on lots of radio and TV stuff. There's definitely a lot more sort of. Get more lines kind of rejected at an early stage by, well, I think some people might read that this way. I think some people might think this. Mm. Um, and in a way, that might be, it's some of the other writers that I'm around, self-centering, whatever, but there'd be people that I'm in the room with now. Just I had one the, the other day when the person I was writing with um, just said, I think people might think that's a rape joke. And I just, I, she had explained it to me several times. Oh, it, it just if, if somebody said it wrong, it might sound like the word rape was in the end of it. Uh, the word was a, a sort of half Dracula, half ape, a Dracula ape. But, but if you said like Dracula rape, it would. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I at this point I went. I, do you know what? I'm not. I'm not married to the. It's just a stupid line. Yeah. I don't care. But I am utterly dumbfounded yeah. about that. Yeah. But you know, maybe that if this if this is the idea that nothing should remind you of anything that you might find contentious. But but the um, thing is that, that that isn't possible. And we we are now going down the line where increasingly it's not about rape. It's about 
you know, like the joke of the fringe this year is Olaf Falafel's joke, which is for anyone listening, I keep randomly shouting out cauliflower and broccoli. I think I might have florets. Right. Within two hours of that, of, or, or within two hours, I think, of that joke being published, uh, a Tourette's charity complained and it was on the front page of the BBC. Yeah, they demanded an apology. I think they demanded a fucking apology. <laughs> fucking shit cunt bitch apology. Yeah. Yes. Um, they, they, they demanded a biscuit. <laughs> um, there we go. Well, okay, so we're now on that bandwagon of yeah. <laughs> Now we have to apologise. So that's one... Well, he, has he apologised? He hasn't, has no, he? No, no. Good, and nor should he. Nor should he. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's, it's very silly. It is not taking the piss out of people with Tourette's anymore, you know. Yeah, but how far down that path do you want to go? I mean, uh, a friend of mine is doing a show. I'm not sure if I would have said it on the night that you came in because it happened during the run. Right. He's doing a show about his love of animals. And I think you did mention yeah, this. Yeah, and he, he, he made a joke about pugs being ugly. And right. two people in the front row stood up and walked out. And when he said, what's the problem? They said, we've got a pug. Right. So th- th- this is my point. Is like, how far do you want to go down that rabbit hole? That's hilarious. I mean, is, uh, uh, is it okay to make fun of men? Because at some point we'll get there. There'll be men who go, well, you can't make fun of men being, you know, whatever, stupid or, or liking wanking or whatever it might be, because that's offensive to men, right? You can't, because you, you, you can't make fun of women, right? And, and, and you keep going down that path. You end up in a position where everybody's got something. They go, I'm offended. They've got the little fucking flag that they're holding up because it's their little niche which they can use to be upset about something. Yeah. I mean, the pug thing, that's amazing. You did say, you did say that when yeah. I saw you. And uh, I thought um, that some of our best friends live in Leith and they have a pug. <laughs> and if you did a thing... About pugs being ugly, they go, Oh, God, yes, yes, that's why we got a pug. They're ridiculous looking. We love him. The yeah. ugly, insane yeah. thing. Like, that's such a weird thing to get upset about. Yeah. But but the thing is, like, I go, I go and play comedy clubs all the time, and almost inevitably, whenever there's a, a joke involving a sex worker, she's either Russian or Ukrainian. Right. Well, I'm Russian, my wife Ukrainian. Should, I mean, that you could say that's offensive stereotyping, right? Should I be calling in and going, these people need to be banned from the club, right? You can go down that path and you can find plenty of things that you could legitimately... I mean, it's, it's legitimately offensive to imply that Russian women are more likely to be prostitutes, right? I did enjoy there was a moment in your show as well when you put on a Russian accent. Yeah. Which is great because you have... Um, um, you know, your English is, is, is completely fluent. It's like kind of first language fluent. So your accent is just... You, you have an accent to the extent that... Sorry, I did linguistics, by the way. This mm-hmm. might get really boring. Just, But you have an accent to the extent that your accent isn't a native accent to a part of the UK. That's mm-hmm. the only sentence which really... Yeah. So when you do uh, the Russian one, you, you then put on a Russian accent, which yes. is always... It's a Russian to your first language, right? Yes, yeah. So that's always hilarious to go, right, so, so the, <laughs> the, guy, the Russian guy is now putting on a, an English version of a Russian accent to yeah. put it... Dimitri, I'm sorry, we have, you know, yeah, whatever yeah, you exactly, do. exactly. That was great. But, I, I, yeah, the rules are very... The rules are very intangible and not written down anywhere about which stereotypes you're allowed to make use of in right. comedy. And they have changed a lot. You know, I, mean, there are, I don't know why there seem to be a lot of Nigerian traffic wardens, mm. but, you know, everyone feels roughly the same about traffic wardens. But if you then put on the Nigerian accent, and Mark Bristock does this sometimes because he enjoys doing the accent and he also enjoys 
how tense it makes white people. He's going, to, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. What what I find interesting about all these things, and you know, you saw my show, so you know that I talk about race a little bit in the show. Mm. It's almost inevitably white people that get tense and right. the ethnic minorities that don't. So if I'm talking about my dark skin right. and some of the insults that I've had because of it, the people who also have dark skin are very comfortable with that. Sure, you're just talking about their experiences. Right. The white people are super tense. Now, what possible reason could they have to be tense about it? It makes no sense to me, right? Because I'm not saying something about them. I'm saying something about my own experience, right? And I'm not making fun of the minorities. It's not like they are witnessing me insulting minorities in their presence and they're saying nothing. So we've got this very, very... um, super tense situation because and as i talk about in the show because we keep being told that we live in this terrible intolerant society which we don't it was i i did a terrible thing to andrew doyle when i interviewed him of saying i really like that show the bit in your show when you did this and then he said that's not in my show (laughs) so it was obviously in your show where you you challenge the audience to think of a country other than the uk Mm. where they would prefer to be an immigrant yeah and I, I, that's a, that's and there a, are some countries where that might be true. There, there absolutely are, but it's not. It's not like you've got twenty of them leaping to the front of your no, mind immediately. No, you, you've got Canada and maybe a couple of others, but mm. but broadly speaking, Britain is one of the best places in the world to be an immigrant. And I ask that question every night, and every night the audience react like I just said that Harvey Weinstein is a top swordsman or something. You know what I mean? Right. It it, it it's mind boggling to me. So what, okay, so you're near the end of the fringe. What's your list? You got a list of the answer, answers to that question. So you thought Canada? Someone said Ireland when I was uh, yeah, there. That, yeah. that, that, that might be something to that. That seems reasonable, unless you're uh, it's, unless you're English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it's changed a bit. When I was a kid, um, we had to go to Ireland a lot uh, to <laughs> to visit. Like ninety percent of our family, like the like the bottom bit of an iceberg, mm. are all hidden in Ireland, mm. um, and there were no black people. And when they, um, you know, when you went to a big city, you know, like Cork or mm. uh, Dublin, you'd almost see no black people. And, and people would get stared at. Mm. Uh, and it's, it, it is not like that anymore. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say Ireland's probably a pretty great place to be an immigrant these yeah, days. Yeah, I would imagine that it is. I've been to Ireland many times and people there, in, I mean, some of the loveliest people in the world, I think. Uh, People often say Scandinavian countries, but actually that isn't true anymore. Yeah, I know that they have a reputation that may not be deserved. Well, it might have been deserved 10 or 15 years ago, but what happened when they had a large influx of immigration, uh, it created some problems there. And so the authorities there very much were like, oh, we need to fix this. So now they've taken, started taking action that, well, certainly in Britain would be inconceivable, actually. Yeah, I mean, the left-wing parties in Denmark... Have have gone into power by taking very right positions on immigration. Yeah. Um, so so those countries probably fall out. I mean, uh, some people threw some countries like Indonesia at me, and I kind of agreed with it on stage just because I'm ignorant about the situation there, and I don't know. Yeah, I don't really. Know I don't know what what it's like. Um, I imagine if you're an expat, those countries are great. If you're someone coming from Thailand or. <coughs> I don't know. You'd, be, you'd probably be alright going to Thailand and Indonesia, I'd have thought. I'd, but maybe, maybe coming from somewhere African to Indonesia yeah, might, might right. not be so great. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't That's literally just a guess. Yeah. I haven't been to We've Indonesia. We've just insulted Indonesians. But I, well, but I've spent, I've spent time in, uh, in uh, 
that part of the world and only in Malaysia and Thailand yeah. and um, and in general they're lovely to walk around if you look Western and yeah. European. I didn't see very many uh, black people. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like the Middle East is an awful place to visit in many many ways. You mm-hmm. know, and depending where you're going, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you if you're well to do and from Western Europe or America or Canada or whatever, you'll or be Australia, right. you'll be fine in Dubai, right? Yeah. But you, it, it's if you're a Pakistani construction worker, they are yeah. very, very racist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, most people are, but this is this is exactly my. They point. are, you know, you know. I mean, it's, it's it's a very racist society. Yeah, it is. It is, um, and just like just like Russia, just like Eastern Europe in general, just like Central Europe, just like Southern Europe, just like the Far East. I mean, the Chinese and the Japanese. Uh, I mean, the only thing with Japan is, I have to say, there's no question when you go there. Have you been to Japan? Never. Well, Japan is I amazing. I would love to go. You, you should. It's incredible. You get there, you realize that they that they are absolutely... They're Japanese supremacists. And when you spend two weeks there, you go, yeah, you guys have got a point. You are superior. Right, right, right. I mean, I felt like a barbarian for two <coughs> weeks. Complete barbarian. Well, they, they have a word for that. Do they? Gaijin. Somebody who's not Japanese. But it's, it's, it's not flattering. No. It doesn't just mean foreigner. It's like it's... Dirty foreigner. Closer, closer to barbarian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you feel like a barbarian because by their standards you are. Uh, but you can be told, you can go to a bar and. Sorry, I, I, I want to go to Japan so much that I've been teaching myself Japanese and things. You mm-hmm. can't be told, you know, Gaijin no Dami or whatever. You know, you can be turned down entrance to somewhere by not being Japanese. That's interesting. Never happened to me. The, the, the thing that compensates for what is clearly an attitude of being superior is their incredible politeness. So right. they may they may think you are one of these barbarians, but they will be extra nice to you anyway. And, and so I had a great time there. But, but just coming back to our broader point, I think most of the rest of the world is not as tolerant and welcoming as this country is. And I'm trying to remind people about that because we keep being, you know, indoctrinated with this idea that that isn't true. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's, it's a worthwhile message, especially um, people who feel very dis bearing about something like Brexit mm. the idea that this is the kind of the worst instincts of the mob that's won mm. I think it's worth bearing in mind I mean there, there are issues you know there are issues there mm. you know there, there, there's the spike in, uh, in uh, racial hate crimes and things like that after the after the vote there are definitely issues to contend with there that's, a, that's also <clears throat> that's also quite debatable that that issue uh, the statistics from uh, the Office of National Statistics show that uh, race uh, hate crimes based on a racial uh, thing have actually plummeted over the last 10 years. Uh, what has happened now is that... Oh, yeah, yeah, over the last 10 years, there's like a spike, spike in them after the Brexit vote. Yeah, yeah, but, but again, the, the problem with all of these things is they're, they're, they're largely self-reported and not investigated by the police. So if you and I were to yep. have a conversation now, as we've done, and you were rude to me, and I decided this was because I'm Jewish or because I'm an immigrant, sure. and I reported to this, this to the police, they would have to record that as a hate incident without investigating. <coughs> yes. So a lot of this stuff, when you actually look at how many people, when asked in a survey, say that they have been a victim of a hate crime, that number is plummeting all the time. Right. What is happening is that it's an issue that has become politicized, so people maybe report more stuff. And also, as I say, a lot of it is subjective, right? Yeah, I mean, self-reported statistics always have to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. 
Um, but if as long as you're reporting, oh, okay. So the number of incidents reported to the police, and there's a spike kind of in the week after the Brexit vote or something. Mm-hmm. That 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 seems like it probably correlates with with a spike in something to yeah you know complain well, look, about. I'm sure there was. <coughs> I have no no. Um, I'm not naive. There are definitely. And by, by different measures, there's about 4% of British society who are genuinely racist. I'm talking about people who, in a survey, anonymously, would have genuinely racist views. Oh, are there... Are there it's I, about 4%. What was the survey? What was the, what was the question? Are you a racist? No, the, the questions might be about, do you think uh, do you think Britain should be for white people only? Or do you think... Right, okay. Or, or stuff like that, right? And if you, if, you, if you ask enough questions, and if you do it anonymously, and people feel comfortable ask, answering that, you get about 4%. On the data, about 4%. Right. So there are those people, and those people may well have felt emboldened because they may have interpreted <coughs> the Brexit vote as as everyone agreeing with them. When, of course, in fact, the vast majority of people who voted Leave didn't do so because they want Britain to be white. Sure. Oh, sure, right. And don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm also not naive with regard to statistics. Mm. You know, a, a 20% increase in a thing that's a very small number already... It's you know it's a significant increase, but it doesn't mean that it's happening every day to everybody. No. Yeah, I mean that's that's clearly the case. We're about to have another uh, deep and depressing end to the podcast, which would make it unbroadcastable. Oh, we haven't mentioned that. We haven't. <laughs> met, um, Constantine was the first ever guest on um, Citizens of Nowhere uh, in an episode that we did not put out mm. because it went fucking weird at the end. And um, I, I, I should... Just like this abso- Absolutely <laughs> complete. I still do not know how to edit this stuff. Um, I think Carrie's going to have a go at editing it. There was a, a weird long... bit. We, we came to a natural finish and then and then started up again. Yeah. And it got onto really weird, depressing stuff, which uh, Carrie in particular, I think, thought we weren't quite sure where we were going and then it maybe looked like we were trying to say stuff we weren't trying to say. Mm. Um, in fact, where I was going to try to get onto... Mm now, because I think we didn't, but it comes up in your show, mm. was the number of people in the UK, so back onto the free speech mm. thing, mm. the number of people in the UK who have been uh, arrested? Arrested. Arrested for things that they've said on the internet. Yeah. Which, I mean, I I, I, know that, I knew the figure before your show, mm. because I had heard you on a different podcast. Right. <laughs> so it was still coming from you. Yeah, yeah. It's 3,300 people who were arrested in right. Britain last year. Which, which you compare to the Russian figure. Yeah, which is 400 people. Right. Now, that's not necessarily a fair comparison because, as I talk about in the show, Russia, as a society, is racist and is uh, discriminatory against different groups. So the fact that people aren't being arrested for, uh, for posting offensive stuff in Russia isn't necessarily a reflection of how how good Russian society is when it comes to these things. Yeah. But and also being arrested for things that you've said on the internet doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have to be just offence, right? It could be um it, things that are covered by previous hate crime legislation. It could be stalking. Yeah. It could be uh death threats, rape threats. All be. of those things presumably are covered by be. this. So yeah. you know, so some part of that large number might be accounted for by the fact that the police uh react more sensitively when you go this guy said he was going to kill me and my children yeah yeah. in a way that in another country they might go yeah whatever yeah uh, but, but again the, the question is what is a death threat so for sure. example uh, I've had 
people tell me or in Francis because of our show to eat a grenade. Okay. Is that a death threat? I, w- I o- only so. if they're a very good hypnotist. <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah. Go, 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 go! Fuck your mom is not a- is not actually an instruction to to y- rape or incest. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um, but I, as you know from the show, and these things I probably don't want to give away. But there, I give examples of people who have been not only arrested but prosecuted and then convicted. Right. Of being grossly offensive. It is now an offence in this country to be grossly offensive. It is illegal to be grossly offensive. What's, um, what's the law? Uh, it's sec- I think, offhand? Uh, it's, uh, no, I put section 127 of the uh, Malicious Communication Act or something like that. Okay. I mean, I can look it up. <coughs> um, but the, the law says that that under the law, being grossly offensive is a crime. Uh, and it's a crime for which you can be prosecuted, convicted, uh, fined, uh, uh, and so on. So, um, and that isn't a threat. That isn't <clears throat> isn't you inciting violence, which I think should be a criminal offence if you are actually inciting violence. Yeah. Or that, that, fact, that, that feels like a red line. Although I still think there's a question of what does incite mean. Right. Well, Joe Brand being the perfect case for yeah. that. When she said, I think we should throw acid on politicians that I don't agree with, was that incitement? Or do we all know that she was performing as part of a comedy show and therefore it's a joke? I th- the, the context must be... I mean, I, I, know, I know you're about to say that the problem these days is that context doesn't matter. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, the context I thought would be key there. Wasn't it, wasn't it, why use milkshake when you could get back... Can't these people get battery acid? Something yeah, like that. something like that, right. Now, was that incitement? Followed and, by her explicitly saying she'd never do it. Yeah, but um, but incitement isn't about you doing it, it's about other people. No. So yeah. She's saying, I'd never do it, but you. some people might argue, and I disagree with them completely, that that represents incitement to do that for other people. And imagine that, you know, two days later, someone had done that. Someone did throw a battery acid over a politician yeah. they didn't like. Would, I mean, we, we, we do have, you know, Anders Breivik, hmm. you know, the Norwegian... Uh, terrorist quoted various writing comedies I think he quoted uh, Melanie Phillips yeah. and I can't remember who else as you know reasons why he did this as a yeah. instigation but if someone quotes a bit of your comedy and then go and shoot someone sure is that incitement or is that just one mentally unstable person misinterpreting something right well exactly yeah. it should, should um I don't know, like, should the Beatles go on trial for the Manson murders or something? Yeah. Right, or, or I joke about being Russian and my wife being Ukrainian. Right. right. Uh, if I had joked about that before the, the, the Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine, was, was I inciting that? You know? I'd be surprised. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think that was a larger, larger event than, really. than me. I know, I know. But my point is that once you start going down all these rabbit holes, what you find is it's very open to interpretation. Uh, and as in many cases that I talk about in the show, the interpretation of the courts isn't always as sensible and common sense as we would assume. And that is because if you create a law that is vague and makes being offensive a crime, in other words, speaking a crime, you ha- you're going to run into problems. Yeah. I mean, um, th- there have been a few examples um, 
recently there was the, you know there was the the Count Dankula thing which went to court in, in Scotland, mm. which is different law from the from uh, England, and uh, there I mean Danny Baker lost his job at the BBC mm. over the chimp tweet. Um, I'd be interested to know whether you think where you think the lines are for a comedian in particular. Mm. Um, so, I think, I, we, so we, I think we 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 would both would both agree with the phrase that incitement to violence should be yeah. illegal. But what would that entail? Well, see, with the comedian, the problem is that they are specifically in a place where they are attempting to say things which are clearly not serious. Right. Right. So it, it's very difficult. I mean, if a comedian goes on stage and does an hour of ironic comedy at the end of which he says, you know what, I think we should shoot all whatever. Yeah. Right. Is that incitement to violence? I don't know. You have to see it. You have <coughs> to be there and you have to judge it and you are subjective and none of us really know. Sure. Um, and and the, con- the context is absolutely key, right? Yes. Because jokes don't survive being read out by somebody else in a courtroom or on no. news night or whatever. No. And, and also the context sometimes is the implicit understanding that what was being said was being said ironically. So the kind of shit that you would have heard say, said by other comedians as you're driving to a gig is not only unprintable, it's probably unrepeatable even on this podcast. Right. right? Because of how how ironically horrible it might have been, right? Yeah. Um, that's what comedians do. We banter and we try and one up each other, and eventually you end up in a place where everyone kind of goes, "Oh, okay, we got we got far enough. Let's backtrack." I, I, I used to try to talk about this on stage years ago. I had a bit about how quickly a room full of comics goes to paedophile jokes. Yes. And, and how and how when there's someone there who isn't a, a paedophile, <laughs> who yeah. isn't uh, isn't a comic. They just don't understand why everyone's suddenly talking about paedophiles. Right. It's good. Oh, because it's the worst. You know, we're all doing the worst thing we can imagine very quickly. Yeah, and it's going to get worse than this. So you should leave now. Yeah. Um, well, but... I'm doing a show tonight called Roast Battle, oh, right. which you you'll know. Which is essentially the idea of it is that you take the piss as brutally as possible out of someone that you like, right? And the whole point of it is that anything goes, right? And it's like a rap battle kind of idea, right? Uh, but there's no rap. You just say five jokes about this person. Right, okay. So uh, a friend of mine uh, who I did it with last year, who I'm doing it again, he, I think last year he said that I simultaneously looked like a Holocaust survivor and a Nazi concentration camp guard. Right, okay. Right? And he knows that I'm Jewish. That's quite a, an edgy joke. And I said that he, he's a man who, who he looks like he's... Um, he, he's a man with Down syndrome whose face is so fat he almost looks normal. Wow. Right? Those are both... You must be fairly good friends. We're very good friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, 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 that's that, the point. That, that, that's a Both of those jokes, for me, are because we're both comics, we go, oh, you must really like this guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who is it? Sam Russell. Oh, oh the guy who looks like Down syndrome. No, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Well I up. do not know. Yeah. He's a lovely guy. I'm good friends with him. Um, so that in that context, that is not even an offensive joke, right? And I am not making fun of people with Down syndrome. I'm making fr- fun of my friend Sam. Sure. That, that, that's just... That's just uh, and, and with the other thing, apart of that joke, and this is, this is key, but unfortunately very hard to defend when you're already being atta- attacked mm. for offensiveness, is... 
The point is that it's offensive. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, you know, you're not choosing Down syndrome because it's exactly the right fit facially. You're choosing it because it's also grossly offensive under most circumstances. Yes, exactly. To use that as a reference point for fucking anything. Yes, exactly. And yeah, this is a, it's a a perfect example of what is sometimes called benign norm violation. Mm. In comedy, where the point being the point of what, why do we why do we even have this urge to make this strange noise, voluntary noise of laughter? And one of the big theories is that oh, something nearly wasn't okay, but then it was okay. It's a safety signal. Yeah, yes, we're, we're safe. We're fine. We're no, safe we're... from what might have been danger, but it's fine. Yes. So it's uh, something that is similar to danger, but actually not dangerous. Yes. And we seek that out, right? Roller coasters, mm. horror movies. And comedy is kind of a higher level of that, I think. Yeah. Which is one of my... Probably, maybe this... Uh, this was almost going to be what I talked about this year, but I ended up with tribalism. Mm. Maybe next year. The reason that it's so hard to have totally safe space comedy mm. is because a lot of comedies there... Because for a moment it feels like not a safe space. Yeah. And then it actually is. No one means this. No one's really been mean. No one's mm. really going to die. Yeah. Well, I have a whole bit in my show... Uh, where I kind of go to, I talk about race and white people being bad at sport, if you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I do this bit that some people tense up about, and then I come back and I go, well, if you were offended by that, here's what I'm doing, and then I have another joke at the end of it to kind of diffuse that tension from that angle. Um, That is the point. But if you stand up in the middle of that and you walk out, you've just heard a joke that you thought was offensive, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. So the context sometimes comes after sometimes the context is why you said it in the first place in order to then say something else afterwards so the in an edinburgh show especially yeah yeah because you get to play with that longer form stuff you could say something in the first minute that is deeply offensive that could then have a huge impact on what you're saying 50 minutes later down the line where you flip the whole thing on its head and you actually go i said that specifically to point out how horrible that thing was you could do that. Mm. But if, if you don't have that context, as you say, if you read it out in the cold light of a morning breakfast TV show, yes. it doesn't have the same impact. So the, the, the point with it is context is everything. Context is everything. Uh, and so there will be things that I might hear in a comedy club and I think that has crossed the line, personally. But that is subjective to me, number one. And number <coughs> two... There, there is enough context there potentially to, to explain it to someone who maybe just walked in and just heard that joke. Yeah. I th- uh, yeah, it, 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 is, it is extremely hard to explain to many, many people the context thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because people just want to know the, the joke and, and also another, another sort of signalling, another tribal signalling thing is to call somebody else out. But this is a man who said this, a man who has hung around with these people and all of these, you know, you, I'm, I'm throwing marker after marker onto this person that I want to mm. demonstrate mm. is of a foreign tribe, mm. is of an alien tribe, whatever. And the co- context isn't interesting for that. Mm. You know, it's not interesting to get... It, it's interesting to your tribe to go, Boris Johnson is a man who called black people... Um, Picaninis. Picaninis. Yeah. But it's not interesting to those people to go, in the context of saying that Tony Blair was a white saviour flown, savior flown in... And, you know, clearly trying to use the racist language of empire in a sort of stylistic choice. Yes. 
And even if you think that didn't come off and it came off racist, that is fucking different to him out of... He wasn't yelling Piccaninis out of a car door as he wrote... Well, yeah, he didn't walk up to David Lammy and call him a Piccanini. No. Yeah, absolutely. And it, But no one wants to hear that. No, and no, but nobody wants the honesty. Genuinely, people, people like their ammo. This is part of my ammo against Boris Johnson. Yes. I don't want you to show me it's not a real bullet. Hmm. Hmm. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, that's where we are. Yeah. How many more shows you got to do? Uh, tonight and tomorrow, and that's it. Monday. But but as we discussed, you've nearly you've uh, nearly sold out your Monday, so you, yeah. you won't have that weird damn squib at the end. Well, you never know, because I, I mean, it's weird. My audiences have been really enjoying the show, and I've enjoyed doing it, but I have had two or three of those where they all just come and smile. Uh, and then they all walk out, and they say they enjoyed it to my tech, and people standing outside overhear them saying they enjoyed it, but they yeah. made absolutely no audible sign of that enjoyment at any point in the show it is really hard to break that yeah. and um, have you found this that when that happens and you talk to other comics who've done the show that night they often have had a similar experience yeah I, f- I find it I think I that happens that. too often to be coincidence mm. I think you know you can have a especially if it's like a weekend you go do you know what it was it was pretty full but fuck me they were hard work yeah. and everyone else was everyone else goes yeah my Mine were like pulling yeah. teeth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, there's no rhyme or reason to it, which I, I think one of the reasons that we enjoy doing comedy is it's like riding a bull and you never quite know where and it's going to throw you off and you're going to have to get back on. And if it was all continually predictable, equally pleasant every single night, yeah, you'd probably get bored of it. You would. And the thing, uh, I, I think we weren't recording when I said this earlier, but as this being your first hour... Do you feel it's uh, improved you as a comic? Oh, massively. I am, as a comedian, I am twice the comedian that I was. So I would say my show is maybe 30% better than on the first night. Right. But as a comedian, I am 100% better than I was. I agree. I think, it, I think it's like being forced to go to some sort of comedic gym every mm-hmm. day for a month and you've just got better muscles by the end of it. Yeah. You're doing, um, I, I think of it as uh, comedy under experimental conditions mm. where only the audience and you and the show if you change the show those are the only variables otherwise you were doing it same time of night same city same room mm. same building yeah. everything else one of the great thing it teaches you is what we just talked about which is that it's not always you if, if right. it goes well it's not always you and if it goes badly it's not always you some audiences just don't laugh and some just do yeah, and, and uh, some audiences, uh, especially if you don't follow sport, which I don't, and I, you only follow it for the racism. Um, I have no idea if you're into sport, you massively. I like basketball. Right, okay. It's the, the most anti-racist sport. <laughs> um, but it's very heightist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I decided, no, for instance, that uh, on the Saturday, uh, Scotland had just won at rugby or something. Right. So they're just... Uh, a larger than negligible proportion of your audience are shit-faced by the time it's 9.15 to my show. Yeah. I, I don't know this. I don't follow this. Or they're wet. Yeah. Or they've been wet three times yeah. already and they've just steamed off in yeah. other shows and they have nothing left. And I've tried to manage all the little things because I, I, the little things matter a lot. I remember reading a, an article or a study which said that... Uh, one of the key factors in, in an outcome of a business meeting is the quality of the biscuits that are served. Right, okay. 
Uh, and so I've tried over the month to instill in my tech and the people who are doing the door and stuff that it's really important that you don't shout at people to get in the front row. You ask them politely to do it. Still very directly and forcefully, but yeah, politely. Yeah, yeah. You know, having the lights at just the right level when they're coming in, having the music at just the right volume, having the, the music that I want to have, like all of these little things I've tried to manage. Uh, and I don't think it's made any fucking difference whatsoever. <laughs> I, I, I uh, a few years ago I thought it'd be really 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 fun and quirky to instead of um, walk in music just to have on a teach yourself Dutch tape and I tried it one night and they went what are you doing you're ruining your own show there's no atmosphere in the room the audience is just listening and puzzled and feel uncomfortable hmm. Just not worth it at all. No, no. I, I remember um, a couple of friends of mine were doing a split show last year where their idea was that they would have a telephone on stage which would emcee the night. Right. So it would go, are you well? And all this kind of stuff. And of course, people don't want to talk to a yeah. telephone. So it just ended up being a really awkward five minutes after which they had to do a show. And uh, I said to them, you need to get rid of that fucking phone. Uh, and the, the show became much more successful because of it. Yeah, um, Beck Hills's show has a little bit of audience audience participation at the top, but because she's what she's asking the audience to do, without spoilers, she's holding out a kind of a, a flip board that she's written this instruction on. So there's still there's still a human being wanting you to do this, mm, mm. and that makes all the difference. Yeah. I think if it just came on a projector screen, mm. people would be much less inclined to join in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so listen, you, you got any plans after Edinburgh? Well, I'd like to do the show down south. Uh, I certainly will be doing it in London, and I've got a couple of places in Brighton. But the idea for me would be to take... I think it's a show that, that uh, there are people who would want to see that show outside of Edinburgh. You I think? Could, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Is there anyone outside Edinburgh? <laughs> it doesn't feel like it at the moment. But um, uh, I do think that I know there are a lot of people who want to see it outside of Edinburgh. So... Uh, hopefully I can have a small tour or just do a few dates here and there, but whatever. Um, and then it's back to getting better, writing a new show, improving, working on trigonometry. Yeah. Who have you, do, okay, are you allowed to say who you have coming up as guests? Um, yeah, I mean, we've got some interesting people. We've got a guy called James Bloodworth. Who oh, wrote, yeah. You know him? He yeah. wrote a book about going undercover in an Amazon warehouse as an Uber driver. Yeah, teacher. yeah, really interesting. Um, uh, Tony Blair's former chief speechwriter, uh, Phil, Phil, Collins, Phil, Phil Collins, Collins, yeah. yeah. Phil Collins, yeah. <clears throat> his, his book on speeches is tremendous. Yeah. Uh, so we've got him. Now we're, tonight we're releasing an interview with Norman Brennan, who, who used to be a police officer for 31 years. Okay. He talks about knife crime and gun crime and what's happening on the streets of Britain. Um, so yeah, a few interesting people like that. Yeah, how so how are you getting these people? Because you, you you've had some tremendous guests on. Mm. Did you did you just uh, just find that if you ask people, they're generally up for it? It depends. It depends on the person. There are some people who are generally up for it. Um, there are some people who need to be contacted through someone they know. There are some people who need a very specific person to recommend us to them. Right. <clears throat> some people you need to be in the right place in the right time. Like Douglas Murray, for example. We managed to get Douglas Murray on the show because we caught him uh, at a conference that we were also at. Okay, right. And we, we met and we chatted and we got on well and I said, hey, we do a YouTube show. If I get my cameraman to come up with all the equipment tomorrow, do you mind if we take an hour and do an interview? 
Sure, yeah, I guess if you can make it very convenient. Yeah. Because I don't live in London anymore, so um, a lot of people a lot of people who dropped out mm-hmm. uh, in Edinburgh for various reasons of, of stress and anxiety or being nominated um, have gone, no, but we'll do it in London, right? And I go, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's not mm. as easy as you to be. Um, but you, So thank you for coming to our, our flat Thanks here. For, thanks for having me. I'm not famous enough yet to drop out. No, (laughs) (laughs) have a great final show and thank you for being on Citizens of Nowhere. Cheers. Thanks for having me.